Hello and welcome to this edition of the Matt Adams Podcast, joining you semi-live from the southeast side of Indianapolis, Indiana. Now, the past few shows, my wife Anne has joined me, but this week I'm going to fly solo. I've done this several times. I haven't actually looked at the index of episodes, but I've probably done more solo episodes than I have with Anne but she's definitely a big part of the podcast. Just this week, I wanted to talk about something that falls outside her area of expertise, and that is my writing. And it's it's kind of funny because the original intent of the podcast, I think, was to talk quite a bit about my writing and what I do as an author, but it's sort of evolved into where I talk a lot about pop culture and movies because that's stuff that works itself into my writing, and that I'm interested in. When I saw that Masters of the Universe, for instance, was on Hulu, I wanted to watch it again and talk about it. Boom, there's an episode. So just a little publication history for you. I am the author of two published novels. One is called I Crimson Streak, which is a first-person superhero novel, and its sequel to Crimson Streak, which is also a first-person superhero novel. I, Crimson Streak was originally published in 2012 by an outfit called Candle, Mark, and Gleam out of Bennington, Vermont. They also published the sequel to Crimson Streak in 2013. And I thought that was a big deal. And it is. It's hard to get published. Doesn't matter whether you're talking small press or self-publishing or getting an agent and going through one of the larger publishers. It's tough, because you've got to do the work. Even if you're self-pubbing, there is a lot of work involved. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. Crimson Streak and Two Crimson Streak. You know, the first book did all right, I would say. The second book didn't do all right. It did less than okay. Sales dropped off quite a bit there. The publisher got sold. Somebody else ran it. Uh, The editor who acquired my book left, or my two books, left. And they wanted to go in a different direction. More hard sci-fi stories that might have meaning and importance and shed light on the human condition, whatever that means, that would have a sci-fi edge to them. And Crimson Streak does not meet any of those qualifications. It's a fun, pop culture-infused romp. And so when Candlemark and Gleam kind of rebranded itself, Crimson Streak was one of the casualties. I had some copies of the book still. I sold through... Uh, the stock that I had on hand, they just kind of sat and waited until I got got all that stock sold. Meantime, there really wasn't an ebook up, and so there's a small press out of Kentucky called Hydra Publications, and they do a lot of science fiction work. And I know a couple of people from there, so they acquired I Crimson Streak and Two Crimson Streak, and Three Crimson Streak as well. And one and two were very easy because the books are done, they've been completed, they've been copy edited, laid out. I mean, it's really easy. You just you slap a different logo on the cover where the Candle Mark and Clean logo went. You put the Hydra publication symbol and you're good to go. So th- those were pretty easy to do. And now I'm, I'm glad that they're back in a form where people can buy them, although I probably don't do a good enough job of promoting my own books, but it's good that they're out there and I can say, hey, I wrote these books, here they are, you can find them, buy them on Amazon, and, you know, that's the foundation of things. Kind of in a holding pattern 
on Three Crimson Streak. It will eventually come out. I just don't have a timeline or a timetable for that because they have a release schedule and they've got a lot of authors that they're working for. And also the the owner of the press is working on some behind-the-scenes stuff with some of his own material. So that has been one of the reasons that Three Crimson Streak hasn't come out yet. Not fine for the readers because people who read it in 2013 would know that Two Crimson Streak ends on a giant cliffhanger. The, the, the book does resolve itself as far as the plot threads and the character development within that book, but it's part of a larger overarching story, and it, it does sort of end in that Empire Strikes Back way, where the, the hero has gone to a certain place in his journey, and the, the plot has resolved itself for that particular book, but the overall story is not over yet. You know that there are battles still to come. The good guys for now have lost, and they're going to have to regroup and rally in the next book, which is, I, I said before on one of the very first episodes of the podcast that for uh, several of my books, or the books, I, I've written two series, and they're trilogies each. They both follow that Star Wars template of first stories a standalone, the second one's a cliffhanger, and then the third one resolves everything from the first two books, which is sort of your Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi structure. As you know, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. That had a big impact on me from a storytelling perspective. So that is kind of how the Crimson Streak books progressed. And, and I'm proud of the books because, let, let me tell you, writing a book, there's there are a lot of authors out there. Just go to Amazon and look at the, the Kindle book section and, and you'll know that there are authors all around you, even if they don't talk about their work. Each one of those people, despite maybe a very, very small handful of scammy people who are out there, have worked very, very hard on their book. Word counts are going to vary. If you do any writing, you'll know we tend to talk in word count. Most people are baffled by that because when they look at a book, they pull it open and they look at the paperback of Jurassic Park and they see 400 pages, so they assume that authors count their pages. Well, you know, if you go into any kind of professional writing sphere and you talk about how many pages you've written, and that really is not the way that people typically count. They count by words. I remember when I was first starting out that there was an author who I followed on Twitter, and I, I still look up to and interact on occasion, and he wrote 2,000 words a day. And I just thought, my goodness, man, how do you do that? How do you have three, four, five hours to write 2,000 words a day? As you get better at it and you make it part of your schedule, then, you know, you can write 2,000 words in an hour and a half. Sometimes on a good day, you can do it in an hour. And it's it's not a race. I try to do 2,000 words a day, although I've not been real good about that lately. As a matter of fact, I've sucked at it. I have not been the typical author that I have been as far as submitting work and working on things. So this podcast to me is, is to kind of get back on track, make myself accountable for what I really want to do, and, and that is to, to write books and have people read them and enjoy them. You know, you think, I've got good ideas, I'm going to write it down. So a typical book, I would say for adults, 
is probably between 75 and 95,000 words. And that's that's a lot. And if you're talking some different book genres like epic fantasy or science fiction where there has to be a lot of explanation and detail, you're you're looking at even significantly longer books than that by word count. You know, you're you're starting to get into the 150,000 words at some points and like if you've ever seen the the Game of Thrones books a Song of Ice and Fire, I suppose, is actually the, the technical name of the series. Those books could kill a man, those paperbacks, because those are between, like, 250 and 300,000 words. Because George R. R. Martin has uh, that ability to write that amount and really up those word counts. And he's he's earned it because the books have sold well, his TV show is a hit, on HBO that's based on those books. The TV show is going to resolve itself before the book series ever does. I'm convinced of that now. I didn't think that for a long time. Now I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen because he's got, I think, two more books that he wants to write in that series. The latest book, I think the sixth book in the series, keeps getting delayed, doesn't really have a release date, and I think there's going to be a book after that as well. So, who knows what's going to happen with that. But just to put that in perspective, I'm going to take a look at one of my books called That's No Moon, and it's about a family who takes a vacation to Earth's first and only orbiting theme park. It's based on the Death Star, but the marketing department uh, failed to secure the license so instead of calling it the death star they call it the life station the these aliens invade they think it's a real battle station and it becomes chaos it's a comedic book with a lot of pop culture references a lot of star wars references in there but it is 90,000 words and it's complete and as a double spaced document in Microsoft Word, it's 368 pages. When they say, you know, between 75 and 95,000 words, that just kind of gives you a ballpark. My book here that I'm talking about is 90,000 words, and it's 368 pages, double-spaced in Microsoft Word. So if you're looking at about 2,000 words, you're looking at about a little over 8 pages, or a little over 7 pages for that, like, 7 and 3 fourths of page somewhere in there and that's that's a lot and I thought I would never be able to do that but again you make it part of your routine you get faster and you don't even have to be a fast uh, typist in order to get that in an hour and a hour hour and a half and it, it's not a contest it's not a race you know if you just sat down so if you were to write 500 words a day each day of the week minus the weekends we'll give you a break on that you would have about 2,500 words in a week, and it would take you 36 weeks to write the first draft of a novel. And that would give you a, a 90,000-word manuscript. So, as you can see, if you can write 2,000 words a day, you significantly shrink the amount of time it takes to finish a first draft, and then you can try to write multiple books in a year. And that's kind of the, the method that I've subscribed to or, or tried to meet. But my point is, you don't have to write 2,000 words a day in order to get a novel finished. You start out easy, 500 words a day, and in 36 weeks, you'll have a book written. That really is not a long amount of time. And, and some people can really go to town on these things, and they'll, 
you know, sit down and they'll do 5,000 words a day. I've had days where I've, I've done that and those are good days, but they're rare. They don't happen all the time. You have your life, you have your schedules. I have my wife, I have a turtle, I have a leopard gecko, I have family, I have work. So 5,000 words a day is something that is not going to happen frequently. But it is very satisfying when it does happen. But even after you've got that first draft finished, you're not anywhere near done. You've got to revise that book. You've got to copy edit it. You need to give a developmental edit where you look at your characters and your character arcs and you see where the character starts and where they finish. Have you done enough to complete an actual character arc? You've got to look at your plot, make sure A fits with B, fits with C, so on and so forth. And you might realize, oh, this character that I really liked is superfluous, and they serve the same purpose in this book as another character, so I'm just going to consolidate them. That happens a lot. You know, you, you write a character for a scene, then you go back through, you reread it, and you're just like, well, we've just introduced this new character. They don't really do anything in the plot except for this one thing, so let's just give this role to another character in the book. And it, of course take some reworking and, and that sort of thing, but that happens frequently. Let's say that you've you've done what you needed to do. You've, you've written your book. You've proofread it. You've given it some developmental editing. Now you're ready to release it to the world. No, no, you're not. You're ready to send it to some beta readers. And these are groups of people who you trust, who like your stuff and have read it before. And the, you give them a few weeks to read over it. They'll give you some notes. And you go back and you revise again. And you may go through ten drafts of a book before you feel that it's polished enough. Maybe you, you've got it polished. You feel really good about where the book is. You're confident that... You know, for the most part, you've eliminated typos, especially in the first, you know, especially in that first couple chapters, because if somebody requests your book, you want that to be absolutely flawless. And, and people and editors and agents, they'll be forgiving to a point. They just don't want to see a manuscript that is riddled with errors from page one and through, you know, if you see a couple of errors in chapter one and a couple of errors in chapter two, you can expect that there are going to be lots of errors in chapter three and chapter four and chapter five, and it's going to be all throughout the book. And they're going to think, well, this person didn't put any care into what they presented to me. But let's let's say you've polished. You feel pretty good about it. So what's the next step for it? Well, there's a few different things. One is you can go ahead and self-publish it, but... That has its own challenges. You'll need to buy cover art, or maybe you're talented enough to, to make your own, but most authors aren't, so they're going to need somebody to produce a cover for them, and that's going to cost money. You should probably also, despite your best proofreading efforts and the best proofreading efforts of your wife and your mom, you're going to want to have a uh, an editor look over it, and that is also going to cost money. Self-publishing is perfectly viable. People have done well with it. I have a self-published superhero anthology, and I've been tinkering with Amazon and their KDP platform, which is their Kindle Digital Press platform, Kindle Digital Publishing platform that allows people to put their own books out there, and then they can also be printed physically as well. So with the super anthology that I wrote, you can get it on Kindle, but you can also buy a physical copy. 
if you want to. But you can do that. You can release it, put it out on Amazon, set your price, and start promoting it and, and hope that people are interested in it. So that, that's one way to do it, and it is certainly viable. The second way you can do that is you can try to find an agent for your book. Most of the big publishers, the, the ones that, you know, you see the books in the bookstores, the ones that are near the magazine rack at the, at the store or that you'll find in airports, are done by the big publishing companies. They don't usually just let anybody send them a book proposal or a manuscript. They have a vetting process, and their vetting process is that they go through a literary agent. They've, these are people who have built up a rapport with the publishers, and these publishers trust their judgment. So if this publisher is looking for this book type A, and this agent has book type A, the agent will send it to the publisher, the editors will look over that and see if it fits their needs. And in a way, they're, they're gatekeepers. That's kind of a, a dirty term for people who are really into self-publishing, but that's what agents are. And in order to, to get deals, in most circumstances, there are always going to be exceptions, but in order to get your book published by a major publisher, for the most part, you're going to need to get a literary agent, and there are lots of them. You can go to querytracker.net, agent query, and there are just dozens upon dozens of literary agents out there. They rep children's books. They rep science fiction. They rep memoir. They rep biographies, nonfiction books. They represent authors' estates. They do women's fiction, historical fiction, upmarket commercial fiction, Whatever you, whatever you want to call it. They're the people that, that you really have to go through, traditionally speaking, to get your book in front of these major publishers. Now, there, there's exceptions, uh, like Tor, who's a major sci-fi publisher. They, they do look over unsolicited manuscripts. Uh, Angry Robot, which is a smaller outfit, but still a pretty large... It's not one of the big five publishers, but it's a, it's a pretty big outfit with a lot of really great authors. And every year, they'll do an open submissions period. And that usually opens up around January. And they'll let anybody send in a, a book, their manuscript, and you, you send out your query letter and a synopsis, and, and they'll let you know in a couple of months whether they want your book or they're going to reject it. But it's not easy to get an agent. And I, I've been trying to do that for a couple of years. And it's a frustrating process because you're sending your work out. For the most part, you're going to get rejected there's a very high probability that you're going to get rejected. And it, it's hard. It, it's not, you, you feel like you've written something of value and that's fun and that has a, a lot of, uh, that, that could attract a good audience. That's an, a, a high concept idea. And uh, it's just not working for the agent that you've sent it to. And so they pass on it. There are all kinds of ways that literary agents like to have their work submitted. Some of them just want a query letter, which a query letter is pretty much just a back cover copy summary of your book and what it's about, plus the word count and the genre. They may ask for titles that it's similar to. It's just supposed to kind of give them an idea of where your book lands in the marketplace as, we as whether that would be something that they'd be interested in representing. So here, here's an example of a query letter that I wrote for my book, 
that's no moon. Just to give you an idea of what's generally in one of these letters. Ellen Kidridge and her family went a trip to humanity's first orbital theme park. Modeled after the Death Star, but dubbed the Life Station, thanks to a licensing snafu, the gargantuan amusement park includes a throne room, equatorial trench, and detention area to go along with rides, games, shows, and overpriced food. Oh my god, the prizes. Seriously. Before Ellen, her husband, and their two teenagers can enjoy themselves, disgraced intergalactic warlord and his crew of dim-witted conscripts crash their ship into the manhanger and invade. Their belief, the life station, is an ultimate weapon designed to announce humanity's arrival on the galactic scene and usher in a new era of space warfare. With the other tourists in danger and life station staff incompetent, it falls to Ellen to outsmart the intruders and keep her family together. In the end, she'll long for a simple fix like a small thermal exhaust port. At 90,000 words, That's No Moon is science fiction with the heart of Galaxy Quest, the questionable amusement park practices of Jurassic Park, and the pop culture savvy of Ready Player One. Just imagine the Griswold family in space! So as you just heard, that's not very long at all. Actually, it's less than 200 words for the whole thing. It's about five paragraphs, and they're not even very long paragraphs. But it's supposed to sound kind of like back cover copy for your book, and then again, it outlines the genre. I compared it to Galaxy Quest, the movie, Jurassic Park, the book, and the book Ready Player One, just to kind of give an idea of what the flavor of that book is. That's all some agents want. They, they can look at that, you know, couple paragraphs that you've sent in and think, well, this author has a voice, this author has an interesting idea, I want to know more, and then they'll request your manuscript. Some agents want the query letter, plus the first five pages of your manuscript. You'll send them the same material as far as your back cover copy goes, word count, and, and then you'll send them the first five pages of your book. And so you want those first five pages, first five to ten, probably first 50 pages, to be flawless because that's the, the sample size that most of these folks are going to request. And they'll look over that and they'll think, well... I like the style, uh, the writing's a little conventional, or this is really interesting, or I don't like the characterization. They can judge a lot from five pages of a book. Some of those agents will want you to include a synopsis, which I've been to a couple writing workshops, and pretty much everybody, including the agents, hate the synopsis. One of the workshops I went to had a little program from one of the agents called the Dreaded Synopsis. Because basically what they want you to do is distill your entire book, beat for beat, everything that happens in the book, into one or two pages of single-spaced text. It's hard to do. There's not a lot of art to it. If you're going to try to summarize a 90,000-word book in the span of a couple of pages, you're going to have to pick out just the important stuff. So to me, the synopsis is just kind of a test for authors. If you can write your synopsis well and with clarity, I think that's a signal to the agent that you've got a good, clear picture of what your book is and what it's about and that you can easily communicate that. Not all agents want the synopsis. Sometimes they'll request that along with the manuscript if they've read your query and they like that. Sometimes the agencies just have forms where they have their information and you just submit your name, your email address, the basics of your book, maybe a 50-page sample, maybe nothing, and then they'll just be, we'll get back to you, but we probably won't. Technology has made locating an agent easier, but also harder, in a sense. 
You don't have to work as hard to find the information as you used to. And as it stood, you know, 20 years ago, you would take your manuscript and you'd mail it with a self-addressed stamped envelope to the agency. They would look over your submission and then they'd mail you back a rejection letter or an acceptance letter with your self-addressed stamped envelope. And they don't really do that anymore. It's inefficient. Most everything happens through email now. They, they read them through email or on a Kindle or a tablet, something along those lines. They can just rifle through submissions now. But what that means is it's really easy for everybody to find the information about the agents and what they're looking for and what they represent. So that means more people are competing for the same amount of spots than were, than were before. It's made it easier, but it's also made it harder. Harder to stand out and also means you really have to do your research because... Agents sometimes, even from the same agency, won't follow the same submission policies. Maybe one wants a synopsis, maybe one doesn't, maybe one wants to see half the manuscript, maybe one wants to see only ten pages. Maybe some of them want them done in an online form where you submit it all, maybe some of them want it pasted into the body of an email, your first five or ten pages, maybe the next agent wants you to take your sample and include it as an attachment to your email. You just re really have to do your homework. I honestly, I have spreadsheets. I have spreadsheets of different agents, what they represent, if they may be a good fit for a book, and what their requirements are, whether they want the first five pages attached, if they want the first five pages in the body of the email, do they want a synopsis, do they just want the query letter, you know, when, is the, when are their submission window is closed or open. You know, it, it takes some some legwork and when I it, it's easier to find out the information but it's also a little bit of information overload you really have to do your homework now the good thing is even though it's easier to find out that information and yes there is more competition because more people can find it as well a lot of people don't follow the submission guidelines for an agency or a, or a publisher and you know they, they can look at a submission right away and know whether or not this person looked at their guidelines and then they can they can kick it out so Following the guidelines is a big benefit to getting that done. That's about as far into the submission process that I can talk about. I, I've gone one step of the partial request for manuscript, where the agent liked the concept of the book, read the first 10 or 15 pages, and wanted to read the rest, wanted to read a larger chunk of the book, and then passed. I have had an agent request a partial manuscript, and then request the whole manuscript and pass. I've had agents request the full manuscript on the spot and pass. And I have also had agents request the full manuscript right away and then not get back to you for a year. And then you follow up on an email and they say, well, we've been really busy and we haven't got a chance to look at it. And that that's excruciating. I mean, this, 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 this person uh, liked your work enough to request it and it's been a year since you've heard anything about your book. You know, it, it, it's a challenge, and it, it, it can get very frustrating at times, but you got to keep at it. Any creative field is going to involve criticism. It's going to involve rejection. And that doesn't mean it's fun, because it's not. Frankly, it stinks to go through all of this effort to write the books, to look up the agents, try to find somebody that you think's going to be a good fit, and to just get rejected time and time again. But, as my father is fond of saying, it only takes one yes, and so you've got to keep at it. That's the lesson most writers and authors should take away 
from anything that I'm saying here is you have to keep at it because there are going to be people who don't like your book, who may not see the intrinsic value that you see in it. You've just got to wait till you land the right person. And if you keep at it, eventually you will. And that is what you have to keep telling yourself. Like I said, it's not an easy process. Once an agent has taken you on and signed you on, then they're doing their version of what you've been doing. Where you've been looking for an agent who's a good fit, they're now looking for a publishing house or an editor who's a good fit for that project. Then it's more waiting. And this, this is the waiting part that I have not been a part of because I've not had an agent take on one of my projects yet. So I, I can't really talk a whole lot about it. But what, what it does mean is that you're in for another round of waiting. Could be a few months, could be a year, could be a couple years until the right book find the right person at the right publishing house, and then you're all set. Well, you're not all set, but then at least your, your book may come to fruition. You know, that, that's sort of the, the, the basic layman's explanation for, th for how things happen in the journey to publication. So it's not just, yeah, it's very important to do that 2,000 words a day or even 250 or 500 or however many you can do until you have your manuscript completed and you've got all that work to get the manuscript ready for submission. And then after that, it's more work to find agents that are fits for your work and sending your work out on submission and trying to find somebody who's a good fit. You know, that also means you've got to write your synopsis. It also means you've got to write a good query letter. And there are lots of resources out there for writing a good query letter. And I've read a lot of those resources. I think some of my queries are pretty good. I, I can say that I have had a number of projects requested based on my query letters, but I, I've not quite hit that home run. You know, I, I keep getting stopped at the warning track. You know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good hit. It's a solid hit, looks like, but you know, they track it down at the warning track, and or they, they Billy Hamilton it, jump over the fence and snag it back into the ballpark. I've been close. Really feel like I've been close. And I've just kept writing. The first book I ever wrote was, uh, I have a, I love Michael Crichton. And of course, I did a podcast on Jurassic Park. And love Jurassic Park, the book, and The Lost World, and a lot of his other stuff. And the first book that I ever completed was called Seven. Well, it was originally called Diamond Genetics because it was about a genetically engineered baseball player for the Cincinnati Reds. I thought that was a fun idea for a book. The Reds were terrible at that point in my life. Uh, not too much different from now, actually, although they've been playing a, a lot better of late. I thought it'd be fun that, you know, they would invest money into genetically engineering uh, the perfect baseball player that would play for them. I learned about, like, in 2007, 2008, the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Writing Award. You, you wrote your book, you submitted it, and then there would be this panel of people, and they would choose, you know, which book they thought was the best and fit their tastes well, and, and that would be the, the, the winning entry for the, the contest, and you'd get a publishing contract, and they'd publish your book and all that. And so I went ahead and decided I was going to join this contest, and I realized that the deadline was like a month away. I, who had no experience, I mean, I don't, I am not the most expert person there is out there. I obviously know more than the average bear, but there are a lot of people out there who know a lot more about publishing 
than I do. But 2007, I knew nothing. I, I didn't even do word counts. I was just like, I need this many pages. And uh, I wrote that book in a month. I, I worked a weird shift. I worked like 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. overnights doing a morning TV morning news show. And so I would come home and write for several hours until I got that done. And I did. I finished the book. It is not great. Okay, it's not good, I should say. It needs a lot of work. But you know what? I finished it. And uh, I gave it a read-through. Wrote some very awkward plot summaries and submitted it to the contest. And you'll be shocked to know that it didn't make it out of the first round of that contest. One day I would like to go back to that book and uh, really finish it up and give it a polish. I think it'd be a, a good one. The bones of a good story are there. The writing is not good. I've uh, looked back at it a few times over the years and wanted to go and rewrite it all the way through or start from scratch and redo it. And I'm just like, man, that is a lot of work because in the state that it's in right now, you can't do anything with this. So instead of going back and sort of uh, doing the special edition version of that book, I've written some other stuff. Now, what have I been working on lately? Well, the thing that I've started most recently, earlier this year, is a, is a middle grade book. So this is like a chapter books for, you know, kids fourth grade and up, called Inspector Willie and the Vanishing Veterinarian. We've mentioned him on the show before, but my wife and I got a turtle back in October named Willie. He's 15 years old, and he's a yellow belly slider. She had a cousin who got him when he was a little turtle. You know, he's, he's since moved away, and Willie didn't have a bad home or anything, but he wasn't getting a lot of stimulation, and my wife really wanted to get another pet, and she's got a soft spot for reptiles. We, uh, we got Willie in October, and he's been a really good addition to the household. He provides us with lots of entertainment, and one of these days, we'll do a and I would just do a show on Willie. So much do we uh, enjoy having our turtle. I decided I would make him the detective, star detective in a series of children's books. The first one of that is called Inspector Willie and the Vanishing Veterinarian. It's just about a turtle detective. He lives, obviously, and uh, he's got a little girl who's his owner, or his caretaker, as he calls it. And he is the world's greatest turtle detective, so... Whenever a mystery pops up, the animal kingdom will turn to Inspector Willie, and he will try to solve the case. He's based on the south side of Indianapolis. You know, it's what I'm familiar with. A lot of my books have some Indiana flavor to them, whether a, a character is from Indiana or the action of the book takes place in Indiana. Currently, he's investigating a case. His favorite veterinarian has disappeared. She's been gone for a week or two. Her other animals are starting to get concerned about her whereabouts, and they believe that the evil Radigan crime syndicate, yeah, I cribbed that directly from the Great Mouse Detective, is behind her disappearance, and they're, they're building, like, a casino next to her vet's office, a hotel and casino, which is what the Radigan crime syndicate does, and they believe that maybe they got rid of the veterinarian or did something bad to her in order to get this hotel done. That's, that's the basic idea of the book. Willie is an inspector, or a detective. He solves mysteries. He has a loyal friend who's his Watson, which is a whippet, a type of dog named Rupert. Together they, they work and solve cases. And that, that's been fun. Uh, the goal word count on that is about 40,000 words, which, like I said, 
adult books tend to be 75 to 95,000 words. It's kind of the, the little sweet spot, depending upon several variables, including the, the genre and, and so forth. And I'm about 30,000 words into that book, but unfortunately I haven't written a word of it in a couple of months. You know, I started the podcast. You, you can pretty much make a, a correlation of my writing production to when I started the podcast. I started the podcast in like late January or February. That is when my writing production went down. And I'm still working on my time management and, and how to do a, a podcast every week and, and not, you know, pull my hair out. And I, I just enjoy doing the podcast, so it's going to stick around. I just need to kind of figure out how to work my writing schedule around that. And that has not been real easy for me. I've had a lot of fun writing Inspector Willie, you know, during the day while the family's away, you know, at school and work, you know, he and Rupert watch Netflix together and they watch a lot of detective shows that that are streamed to the household and that's where he learned his detective skills and, you know, we learned a few things about turtles having one and in one is, of course, they're cold-blooded, they can't regulate their own body temperature. Real life Willie likes his water, uh, about 72 to 74 degrees, and that's where he spends a lot of his time. And then he also spends several hours a day basking on a platform under a heat lamp. We keep that at about, you know, 84 to 90 degrees, and that keeps him warm. It's good for his digestion. It's good for his shell health. Also generally good to help him regulate his body temperature. Having known that, then for Inspector Willie, we gave him a self-regulating temperature bodysuit because he can't be an all-environment turtle unless he has something like that to regulate him because if it gets too cold he'll want to you know sleep or hibernate if it gets too warm he's going to be uncomfortable and not be able to get cooler he's got a bodysuit that he can control the, the temperature of so if it gets too hot somewhere he can turn it down if it gets too cold he can turn it up and that's how he gets around he's got a grappling hook on the, on the back of that suit so he can, you know, get to places that he wouldn't normally be able to get to. It's, it's a cute story, and I, I plan to make Inspector Willie into a series. My, my thought was, since it's a shorter book, 40,000 words, that I could churn out several books in a series fairly quickly, and then I decided to start a podcast, and I'm still stuck on book one, and that's just what happens sometimes. Another project that I'm going to finish up is called 16-Bit Heroes. If you listen to the video games episode a couple months back, you'll know I'm a big fan of the Sega Genesis. So 16-Bit Heroes is my love letter to the Sega Genesis. I watch a fair amount of video game YouTubers. I don't know when that started, but I'm very interested in retro consoles. The Sega Genesis, the Super Nintendo, the Nintendo Entertainment System... The Sega Master System, the TurboGrafx-16, the 32X, the Sega CD. Of course, now the the PlayStation and N64 are considered retro consoles. I mean, they were released in the er mid-90s, which kind of boggles your mind. I mean, you could probably even classify the PS2 and the Xbox, the original Xbox, as retro consoles, and the GameCube as well. Big fan of the Sega Genesis. Sega! And so, and I watch a lot of video game YouTubers, and so I made one named Trip, and he has a couple of friends. They run a YouTube channel called Triple Play. It's about Sega Genesis stuff and video games, and they review things and review emulation systems, and I'm sure they throw in some Xbox One and PS4 there on occasion, but they're real love is for the, the games that they grew up with, just like the author of the book. Trip has been, for a long time, has 
thought that this certain video game was being in development for the Sega Genesis. Late in its life cycle. There was a licensed game by this company named MKO, which is... I don't know if you've ever seen the Angry Video Game Nerd, but he hates LJN, who licensed a lot of movies and then turned them into crappy games on the Nintendo and the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis. So they, they acquired a license... And this is all fictional, by the way. There's no merit, no truth, or anything to this. It's just warped imagination, fever dream stuff. In the fictional world of this book, the Norm MacDonald movie, Dirty Work, which was a cult classic that meets no standards of what an actual movie should be. Anyway, this company, MKO, acquired the license late in the Genesis life cycle. They were going to make a Dirty Work game, and it got canceled because, you know, the Genesis was on the way out. Why anyone would buy the, acquire the video game license for Dirty Work, don't ask me. It's just something I thought would be kind of funny. So Tripp has uh, been convinced that this game exists, and he's followed little breadcrumb trails on the internet, and he's pretty sure that, that this game actually happened. But e each time he comes close to acquiring like a, a prototype copy of the game or some code for it, something goes wrong. You know, it, it's, a, it's a scam nothing goes right, can't quite get his hands on it. You know, he's Captain Ahab, and the Dirty Work game is Moby Dick. Until a former game designer steps forward and tells him, hey, I had a part in making this game, I'll give you a prototype cartridge, I just want to, to meet you. So Tripp goes with his friend Ellie and meets the guy, gets the game, he puts it into his Sega Genesis, Sega! which has the... Sega CD attachment, and also the ridiculous 32X attachment. And when he puts that game in, he is sucked into the machine. So, you know, you're typical, you've seen that you've seen that plot a million times, right? Where a guy gets sucked into a video game, it's Tron, and it's been a plot of a lot of different TV shows. It's a trope, you would say. Trip and his friends get sucked into game, what they call Game World. Maybe I'll change that, but that's what it's called now. Which is a Sega Genesis emulator, and in order to get out, they have to be a series of Sega Genesis games. Now, when I wrote the book, I really wanted to use the actual Sega Genesis games. You know, Sonic the Hedgehog and, you know, what have you. I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to do that. All the games in the book are based on Sega Genesis games without actually being the Sega Genesis games. So instead of Sonic and Tails, we've got, you know, Drifter and Cade, who are animals who... You know, one can run fast and one can fly. It's pretty obvious what what's in there, but there's like a kart game that's sort of a Mario Kart type of deal. We did an homage to NHL 94, which one of the best sports games of all time, with a fake hockey game that's designed a lot like that but uses fake teams. Gunstar Heroes is a terrific run-and-gun game. For the Sega Genesis, but we have All-Star Gun Jammers, and it's it's a run-and-gun, I made up an RPG to put in there. You know, it's ridiculous. It's got some ridiculous title that I, I can't even remember right now. The point is, each time that they face one of these video games, they have to go in and they have to beat it in order to acquire an item, whether it's like the Sega CD or... And I, I also made up a crappy full-motion video game for the Sega CD, because that's what it was most known for, unfortunately. Each time they acquired, they beat it. Each time they beat a game, they would acquire a piece of Sega, whether it's like a, an arcade six-button controller, or an arcade fight stick, or the Sega CD, the 32X. Once they collect all of these things, 
then they'll have their final challenge, which is they've got to beat the Dirty Work game, which has characters in it based on the characters from the movie. It's probably not the best idea for a game in the world. That movie is not good. I, I will be the first person to admit that. But when I was in college, a group of friends and I loved Dirty Work just because it, it it's it's so... It doesn't make a lot of sense. Goofy humor. You just can't... You've got to watch it. And even when you do, you can hardly believe this movie exists. Hey, pal, beat it. Why don't you beat it? The lady obviously isn't interested in you jerk-off, so just get lost. Maybe we should let the lady decide. I think you should fight it out. Good idea. Great idea. Brilliant idea. I love the idea. Terry, Jack, Mike. Oh, no. My dumb friend needs me. I gotta go. Well, Mitch, looks like we got ourselves a fight, huh? Great, it's fighting time. Can I be on their side? Looks like there's gonna be a brawl. You playing something good? Hell yeah! Rolling Stones, street fighting man, G. Stephens! You just hit G8. If you like pina coladas, bring it out! You get a pool cue. So there you are, Tubby. Ah, you look like a bucket of lard on a bad day. You baby gorilla. Why don't you work a zoo and stop bothering people? Got a call yesterday from Baskin Robbins. They said that they're down to only five flavors. You're swelling up as I talk to you. Look at you. How's this? How's it doing? Hello, ice cream. Having a good time? <laughs> Running around? <laughs> What are you laughing at? Because I called your friend a fat pig, huh? You think that's funny? Oh, no, I was just laughing uh, earlier when you were talking to his belly. Why don't you get a horse and live in the mountains someplace and don't bother anybody? Got a personality like a dead moth. Okay. The fun's over. Anybody messes this thing up for me tonight is through. Not only are you fired, your life is over. I'll see to it that you never work again and that you wind up tearing tickets off in Kuwait. And everybody's sucking sand? Nobody messes up. You understand me? Don't mess up. Hey, uh, Mitch, you're really starting to like this Kathy, aren't you? No. Mitch, I know you, man. When you say no like that, you really mean yes. What are you talking about? Watch, I'll show you. Mitch, uh, did you ever rob a bank? No. Did you ever climb Mount Everest? No. Did you ever say that you can see why women find Sean Connery sexy? No. Okay, so I like Kathy a little bit. Man, I hate the fact that we have to destroy her grandmother's building. But we have to. Yep. Of course, that all sounds ridiculous enough. But then there's the part of the movie where the two main characters are hired by a guy whose neighbors are really loud, and the two main characters decide they're going to hide fish in the guy's house to get him to move out, and things don't go... As planned. It smells like fish in here. What is that? What, 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 what was that? Some sort of signal? Huh? Is that a signal? No. You wearing a wire? No. Is it that... really does smell like fish in here. You're a damn cop, ain't you? That's it. Show these guys what we do to cops. Say hello to the devil for me. Ah! Ah! Behind you. Ah! I've been hit. Pablo, kill them. Kill them. Make your gun bark like the devil itself. Fire ah! 
because of that, I threw a lot of pop culture into my writing. I thought that would be a ridiculous setup for a video game, and that's how it ended up. So 16-Bit Heroes is something I'm currently working on. I'm about 86,000 words into it, and I'm hoping to do about 95 to 100,000 for a first draft, so I'm real close to finishing that up. I actually had been stuck at that progress level for a while, and then I got the idea for Inspector Willie, and I, I left 16-Bit Heroes and started writing Willie. Recently, I decided, you know, I probably ought to finish 16-Bit Heroes. That is what I am working on right now, and I hope to have that finished in a couple of weeks, and then I'll get back to Inspector Willie and finish the first draft of that, which will make my wife really happy because she's been having me read snippets of that book to her and has really been enjoying the, the Willy book. But of course, it's Willy. It's our turtle. It's basically what we think our turtle would be like if he, you know, could think and talk like a like a person. It's 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 fun to do that, you know. We've kind of built our little fantasy world around our turtle and, and we really enjoy having him a lot. As far as things that are on submission, That's No Moon, which is a, the book about the family that goes to a theme park based on the Death Star before things go awry, is on submission in a couple of places. I've got a small press that's uh, looking at it, and I've got it under consideration from a couple of agents. And there's another book that I wrote called The Studio System, which is about a, uh, a guy who lives in Indianapolis, and everybody tells him he looks like this famous actor. And then he gets involved with this detective, discovers that he doesn't just look like this famous actor, he is a clone of him, and doesn't remember being a clone. Another great book trope. The reason that we find out that is that they can't convincingly recreate human actors with computer graphics, although the, the de-aging stuff is really getting to a point. But they can't really accurately do that so that everybody who sees it believes it. So the studio has made deals with the families of different stars, acquired genetic material from those actors, and cloned them in order to put them into new movies. The studio system, and it is the one that is on submission right now, and I eagerly await word to find out if that's going to be something taken on by an agent. Like I said, it's been a year. I'm not crossing my fingers. Once I complete Inspector Willie and 16-Bit Heroes, those will mark my 17th and 18th completed novels. And when I say completed, I do mean finished, first drafts, done, almost ready for submission. I would say of those 18 novels that about 12 of them are polished, ready to go, and be submitted. And of course, three of those would be the three Crimson Streak books. I did another super, I did another superhero series called the Omni series. It's a little more grounded, if you will, than Crimson Streak, which is a you know a humorous, satirical parody type book. Whereas the Omni is a little more serious, grounded, a little more like Watchmen if you're familiar with the comic books or graphic novels, as I should say. And so those two series are six of the 12 books that are ready for submission. But a few others are really close. I've got another one. My brother and a friend of mine from high school came up with the title Timey Dancer. It's a story about a guy named Russ Studicus Chambers, who starred on a reality show, crashed and burned on that reality show, became a uh, male exotic dancer in Las Vegas. And for reasons I don't think anybody could rationally explain, he ends up in ancient Rome, where he is tasked with 
stopping the assassination of Julius Caesar through the powers of 80s music and pole dancing. It's a ridiculous concept for a ridiculous book, but it's a lot of fun. Kind of a mashup of, just imagine the the Chris Farley, Chippendales skit, although the hero is more of the Patrick Swayze type than the Chris Farley type, although there's kind of a Farley type character in the book. Imagine mashing that sketch up with Gladiator, and you pretty much have Timey Dancer. It's a, it's ridiculous. That one's definitely ready for submission, but I think it's going to be a tall order to get anybody interested in that one because it's so out there. But, you know, you got to try. You got to try. I've got another uh, sort of sports-themed book, a book about a high school janitor who used to be a great NFL prospect but crapped his career away, you know, by being, like, getting the big head and, you know, he had to go play for the Cleveland Browns anyway, which no one's going to be successful doing that. He gets approached by a scout one day and, like, wow, you still keeping in shape and everything. Why don't you come over? We want to have you ha- over for a tryout. Anyway, he gets taken to a, an alternate reality where he became a big football star, but he was involved in a crash and was horribly injured. So the team came over and brought him over from one reality to the other so that he could finish the season with their star quarterback injured. And the other thing about that book is that in the alternate reality where he is a star, instead of the NFL being the predominant football league, the USFL is the predominant football league. So it's just a little bit of a spin on an alternate reality what-if for both the character and professional football. So, you know, there's plenty of stuff out there that I've been writing, and I I reread a lot of my stuff to try to get it ready to go, and and my wife is kind enough to take a look at it. And I also have some beta readers who, uh, you know, read my stuff and give me feedback as well. And I appreciate your patience and for letting me bend your ear for a little bit and talk about my writing. Uh, I'll put a link to the Super Anthology, which is a self-published collection of superhero stories that's available up on Amazon. I'll also give you links for I Crimson Streak and Two Crimson Streak, as well, and if I have any updates on any of my other work, I will let you know. Thanks for listening.